Welcome everyone. Bienvenidos a todos. Praise God for His goodness and His grace and mercy. It's always a, a privilege to be in the presence of, uh, of our God and King amongst His people who know that He is. Um, we are going to continue in uh, Isaiah here in uh, chapter 48. Good stuff. Or excuse me. 46. I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> um, I don't know why I was just looking right at it. But uh, we will be in 48 sometime soon. But it's, uh, it's Prime Day. It's the day before Pie and Beer Day. And that's uh, a good thing. Yeah? Prime because it's 7-23-23. Just the day of Prime. Um, that's an amazing thing. So we are um, in a place in, in time that is not so different than everything else in the past. Um, in particular, ever since 1859, mankind has attempted, uh, by co-opting science, so-called, to overthrow God. And if you're wondering about that date, 1859, that's the date when a certain book was published. And ever since then, science has gone the way of the world in trying to jettison God. And we're here in Isaiah where it's, it's no different, and God is calling out people to know certain things. One of the things that has been striking as we go through these chapters from 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, and 45, here in 46, God has made a few things known. And He's done it over and over again, chapter after chapter, sometimes two or three times within the chapters. And one of the things that He insists on people knowing about Him is that He's Creator. When we're sharing the gospel, we're in a place in time now where we almost have to begin with that. We have to be like Paul at Mars Hill, and we have to go back to the creation. I think we would be more successful in presenting the gospel to people if we started there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And why do I say that? Well, that year 1859, and for our, for our time, it has spoiled that time. It has spoiled that fact and that truth. And many people just have this cognitive dissonance, and some of them may even say, well, yeah, I believe that. And I know this to be true, even yesterday as I'm uh, sitting there in my morning routine as I go through and preparing the, the message and, and all the things that I do on Saturday, I was listening to a radio program, and it was a, it's a Christian radio, it's a, it's a trustworthy um, program that is on truth, and uh, it comes out every Saturday, and I'm sitting there listening to a I can tell you which programs come on, one right after the other, what time they come on. But as I'm listening, I, I, I was kind of distressed, because this is a, a local person, not somebody from North Carolina, and somebody who is fairly local, South, South Jordan area, and they're trying to present this idea of evolutionary creation. And how you can squeeze that in and why as Christians we shouldn't be afraid of that idea. And I'm going, as I'm listening to it, going, 
uh, that doesn't work. That's a contradiction in terms. And the thing that was sad is this, this person, I don't personally know. I've, I've been to, to the church there, and I've listened to him over, over the years and been very trustworthy. Somebody who we, I think for the most part we could be comfortable with. But I don't know where this idea was coming from. And it distressed me. And right where we're at here in, in uh, and I, I believe it was just timing, the way that God works things out, um, as I'm listening to this, I'm like, bro, here's the, here's the issue. You're talking about this. You're talking to a quote-unquote medical doctor. And before previous, uh, the two previous um, programs, he had a scientist, a geologist. And they're trying to sp- um, spin what creation is. And they're using terms and terminologies. And I'm like, bro, you're... You're dangerously close to flying off the wheel here. Because you understand you're doing exactly what the alphabet mafia has done. You're spinning and redefining things. And you're using scientific terms in order to do that. Where in scientific terms, fact is way down here, but theory is way up here. That's how they think about it. And we know what a theory is, and they say, no, you don't know, because you're not looking at it from a scientific mind. Like, well, I don't think I have to, because there's a definition for theory, and there's a definition for fact. And facts are facts, and theories are theories. They're different. But here you have the same thing. God is, is uh, uh, reminding His people of, of several things throughout these chapters, and one of the main things is that He is the Creator. And in many places... He even goes further. He says, not only am I the creator, I'm the one who's done it by myself. I alone stretched out the heavens. In other words, he wants us to understand he didn't need nobody's help. Okay? He said, I don't, I don't need anybody's help. Nobody informed me. I didn't go to somebody for counsel. I didn't have a counsel of the gods. I didn't have to uh, take matter that already existed and, and, and reuse it and repurpose it. None of those things. He says, I just did it. And so we're in a place here where this idea is, is prevalent today that, that God is, is somehow deficient in, in what He has done and who He is. We get those questions all the time, right? You've heard me talk about it over and over and over again. Where you have these fallen creatures from the dirt, this puffed up dirt that wants to somehow say it is immoral for God in the Old Testament to do X and Y and Z because they seem to think that it's how immoral it is. Um, it's like, um, excuse me, I don't think I'm going to accept any morality uh, thoughts and um, morality philosophies from people who believe that men can be women and women can be men and Babies can be killed in the womb. And sorry, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to take morality from you. And less, even less, I, I'm, I'm going to have to refuse your idea of God's immorality. And mindfully remind them, you know, you will one day, whether you believe it or not, you'll stand before God and answer for that. What are you going to say in that day? You're going to say then that he's wrong? I guarantee you won't. I guarantee you're going to be shut up 
you're going to be silent. Yeah, and, and like I said the last couple of weeks, um, in, in the previous chapter, one of the things that we focused on for a couple of weeks was the fact that there, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they, they mesh together in the fact that Jesus, or excuse me, that God says that every knee will bow and every tongue will profess. They'll swear allegiance. And in the New Testament, Paul takes that same idea and he takes that same philosophy from the scriptures, that same uh, truth, and he goes a step further. He says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's applying that which is applicable to God and God alone, and he applies it to Jesus. So you can only draw two conclusions. Paul either didn't have a clue of what he was talking about, or Paul knew that Jesus was God. And that's why he applied it to him. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the thing that I tried to make the theme for the last couple of weeks, and last week the, the idea was the, these uh, um, impotent uh, idols versus the omni, omnipotent God. And the, the truth is, you will bow, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, is how will you bow? Will you bow, um, will you bow voluntarily? Will you bow volitionally? Will you bow of your own will to Christ on this side of eternity? Or will you be forced to bow on the other side? That's the question. And, and the Bible makes it very clear that it's by grace that we're saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God and not of works, lest anyone should boast. So it's just simply by God's grace. We can bow, we can come to Him, and we can trust in Him. So we have those things. Um, it's not a new phenomenon or practice. It's as old as time itself, this idea of jettisoning God. Um, immediately, instantly, it seemed like people who were closest to Adam who was the first man, he knew God. He knew God intimately. He walked with God in a way that we probably won't ever understand until we get to the other side of eternity. And it is eternity. It's not something that's just going to come to an end all of a sudden. It's something that's going to last forever. There's either going to be everlasting contempt, as is written in Daniel, or it's going to be everlasting life. It's one or the other. I love that about Scripture, that so many of these things are just so plain and black and white, but we as people want to uh, muddy the waters, as it were, and make a difference. But it's not a new phenomena or practice. It's as old as time itself. And, and remember that the time is a physical property. So when we're talking about time, it's a physical property, and it doesn't really apply to God. Because God is not in eternity just with a lot of time to do a lot of stuff. We think about that way, and we have to, because this is the only thing that we know, right? And time is linear for us. It's, it's a physical property, and different things affect time. And physics tells us that. Science, actual science, tells us that it does. And it, uh, it, has a, it is a physical property, and from that point of view, can be looked back into in history. So we can look back in time. And hopefully we have good records. 
Um, we can, time can be experienced by us in the present, in the right now, in the here and now. And it's also something that can be seen, but we cannot see it into the future. That's the thing about time. We know that there's a future, but we can't see. We can't, we're not privileged to do that. And only God is. And still, people want to take away the deity of who God is, and especially the deity of who Christ is. And they try to, um, they try to hobble him. They try to take away who, we, who God is and the understanding, and especially from children. It's been robbed of children. I mean, even last night as I was, uh, I was listening to, uh, I don't know if you know who, um, he's a columnist. I think his name is Pat Thomas, I think. He's been writing for years, ever since I, I was a kid. Cal Thomas, excuse me. Cal Thomas is the one I'm thinking about. And he's been writing columns ever since it was, I was a kid. I can remember this guy. He's 80-something years old now, so he's got 20 years on me. And, and he, uh, he was talking about this, and he said during, uh, as he's speaking in an, on another program as I'm headed home last night, he says, I want to speak to Christian parents right now, those of you who have kids, the kids that are at school age. He says, get them out. Get them out of these places. They're indoctrination camps. That's all they are. And they're going to indoctrinate your children. The new thing that I hear from the regime that's in Washington, from the education boards, from the um, teachers' unions, the thing now that they're saying is, your kids are not your kids. They're our kids. That's what they say. They're our kids. They belong to the people of the country. So you shouldn't have a say-so in what the teachers do because we teach them and we're the professionals. I'm not kidding you. That's, that's where it's going. And Cal says, get your kids out. Do whatever it takes. You don't need stuff. Your kids are dependent upon you. Be parents. Don't let them be school. And if you do send them to public school, supplement their their knowledge, supplement their education with truth. Keep building it upon it and don't let them be indoctrinated. Help them to understand and don't just, you know, it's not just a, a matter of quoting the Bible, it's also using philosophy, using, using their uh, things that they use to, to strengthen them. Wanna, um, so, so we can't see the, the, the time in the, in the future, but yet people try to hobble God with that. The point being that man has always tried to remove God from his throne. And what does he replace him with? Himself or something else. Um, I was looking at pictures, if you, uh, looking at pictures from uh, um, ancient deities. And what we do know, those that are carved in stones, those who have survived the, the, the images... What is the image that you always see? It's something having to do with man. It's sometimes an animal head, but when you look at the body, the body's always that of a man. I mean, think about that. It's always been this way. People have always taken and made images and idols and gods in their own image. And it's no different today. It's the same thing we struggle with. So God asks a question here, and I, I want to, uh, um, there is a, um, how many of you have heard the name Stephen Hawking? Professor Stephen Hawking, the physicist, famous guy, in a, uh, in a wheelchair, and uh, he could, he's a brilliant mind, so far as we know. I don't think that voice was always his, 
and that, that was speaking. I'm like, mm, yeah, I don't trust all that. But he was quoted once as saying, heaven is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the dark. That's what he said about religion, basically, about people who believe in God. People who trust in God. He says, heaven is just a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the dark. Thank God for Christians like Dr. John Lennox, who uh, probably should have been a boxer, because he, he loves to bat when he debates, and he's clever, and he's funny, and he's smart, he's brilliant. He holds many doctorates and masters in mathematics, bioethics, uh, and, and things like that. He's a professor, he teaches. He responded to him with this. He said, well, atheism is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the light. That's a good quote. Yeah. He's a puncher. He's a fighter. He gets in there, and he, and he does so so winsomely. I don't know how he does it, how he keeps his cool. And it, it's, it's amazing to, to see. So in light of that, um, we're here in Isaiah 46, and God makes another claim about the, the former things that, number one, that he's a creator. Number two, that he is alone, the only God that there is. There's, there's no other deity. There's no other God. He makes the point also that he is the only one who can save. He's the only one. If you desire salvation, it must be in him and the way that he has provided and that there is no other way. He's the one who forms peoples and nations and tribes and tongues. He's the one who's done this. He insists on us knowing that about him. That's what all of these chapters are really primarily focused on, who God is, how we should see him, and therefore how we should fear him because of who he is. And so he asks this question. It's not the first time in these chapters, but it is the first time that he had asked it here in uh, chapter 46. And in verse 5, he asks the simple question. He says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal or compare me? That we should be alike? It's a good question. He's challenging the peoples of the world. Who are you going to liken to me? Who do you compare me with? Yourself? I mean, think about that. Honestly, think about yourself and who you are, and then compare yourself with God. And what we know about him, what he's revealed about himself. And he says... And make me equal and compare me that we should be alike. Then he kind of, uh, again, he goes back and he talks about the idolaters and says, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, they hire a goldsmith. And he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon their shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you have revealed yourself, Lord, and that you desire us to, to know you as you are. Not as we fancy, not as we have believed or been taught, from childhood, we have many misconceptions. And the only place that that can be found is in your word, your logos, that you have given to us. 
the word that you have spoken through your prophets, through the apostles, that we can trust and that we can know. I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for the grace of giving us your word so that we can know you and so that we can think of you aright as opposed to our own imaginations, which are vain. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the truth and that there is truth and that you are the truth and the way and the life and that no one can come to you except by those means by which you have proposed and given so that we might come to know you. Lord, you're good. You're perfect in all of your ways. You're holy and righteous. You're also merciful and kind. You're compassionate. And you care about people. Thank you. Thank you for caring, us, for caring for us, even though we don't deserve it. Thank you for carrying us from the womb. Thank you for all of these things and more. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. We pray that you would open up our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to these great truths, Lord. Thank you, Father, for everything. In Jesus' holy name. So we ask that question, who is, who, to whom will you liken me? And make me equal and compare me and that we would be alike. It's a good question to ask. And when we think about it, we see what's written in Scripture. We find that almost from the beginning, there's always been this idea. There's no one like God. In Deuteronomy 33, verses 26 through 28, it flat out says, Moses, as he's praying and the people, as they're praising God, he says that there is no one like God, the God of Jeshurun, who rides the heavens to your help. Notice that, what he's, he's uh, projecting there, what he's saying. The God of Israel, Jeshurun is just another name for Israel. It's an ancient name. Who rides in the heavens to your help. In other words, God is your helper. God is your helper. It's one of his names in, in the Old Testament. God, your helper. He helps you. And he rides the heavens to your help. And then he says, and through the skies in his majesty. Verse 27, the eternal God is a dwelling place. Well, that sounds odd. The eternal God is a dwelling place. Psalms puts it this way. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the righteous run into it and are safe. He is a dwelling place. He's a place where we can dwell in safety. He's a place where we can run into and we can find relief. We can find relief from our distress. The eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. So God is above in the heavens, but underneath are his everlasting arms. Those are some strong arms, yo. <laughs> Those are some mighty strong arms. The Mighty Men, what a, you know, I, I, watch, uh, I like watching the uh, uh, strongman competition with all the weird things that they do, throwing barrels, beer barrels, and, and lifting cars, and just weird, odd stuff. But men can do it, and I see these men, and they're, they're nothing compared to the mighty arms of, of God. And that's the point that's being made here in Deuteronomy. Underneath all of those things are the everlasting arms. What's important about that? They're everlasting. They never weaken. If we hold some bricks, one in each hand, it's not too hard to do, right guys? 
You can hold one brick and another brick. Not a cinder block, just a brick. But if we hold that for an hour, what happens? We give out. Those muscles give up. Even something as seemingly inconspicuous or light like that. It, it, it wears us down. The point being, it doesn't wear God down. In fact, God does the opposite. He says, go ahead, put on another brick. Oh, that's not enough. Give me some more. Give me another brick. Throw more. Before you know it, there's 40, 50, 5,000, 10,000. And he's still the same. And he doesn't budge. That's the point. He's always the same. Underneath are the everlasting arms. He drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. So Israel dwells in security, the fountain of Jacob secluded. In the land of grain and new wine, his heavens also drop dew, or they drop down dew. In other words, not only does he help, he provides. In 1 Samuel, there's a famous uh, woman there, one of the famous women of the Bible. And her name is Hannah. She's an older woman. She was, in, uh, she was a, a part of the uh, tribe of Levi, I believe, because her husband was a priest. And... She was barren. She couldn't bear kids. She couldn't bear children. And that's one of the main things that women, unlike today, uh, women longed to be able to have children. And she prayed a prayer one day as she's there at the temple. And the priest looks upon her and she's praying but she's just kind of mumbling it silently. And this priest looks at her and like, uh, this girl's drunk. She's mumbling something. She says, no, 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 I'm, I'm not drunk. I'm just praying, just asking God. And she was asking God to give her a child. And lo and behold, God answered her. And she became, at an old age, she became a mother. And this is the, one of the results in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 3. This is Hannah's song of thanksgiving. You see, God answered her prayer. She didn't forget to thank God. Much like Job, even when God had taken everything. I, I commend to you, if you've never read the book of Job, you want to read a story that gets your attention, especially the first couple of chapters, uh, especially that first one. You want to talk about disaster. Put yourself in that place, in that mindset. Where all your kids are taken away. All your money, wealth taken away. All your goods are taken away. And all you're left with is your wife and what little you have. And even your health is taken away. And what's the response of Job? It's famous. He shaves, strips himself naked, and goes and worships God. And he, humble, and he humbly says those words. He speaks those words. Blessed be the Lord our God who gives and he takes away. Blessed be his name. Like he gives, but he also takes away. He doesn't change who he is. He's to be worshipped. Hannah was so thankful, she broke out into a song as she's thanking God. And it's written for us. And then it says in verse um, 1, uh, verse... Verse 2, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. 
My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there's none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and his actions are weighed. That's pretty deep stuff. That's pretty joyful. That's coming from a place of gratitude. And what is she acknowledging? It's because of God. It's because of God and His knowledge, His wisdom. The prayer dedication of Solomon in 1 Kings 8. Solomon, the son of David, of a, uh, you know, that began in, in an illicit way, the, the first child, his, his brother, Solomon's brother, passed away as a, as a baby, as an infant. Solomon was the son of David, the first king, the first, well, the first really good king. He was the second king of Israel, the third king if you really want to be technical, because God was the first king, then Saul, then David. But in 1 Kings, it's written for us this prayer dedication. Now listen to the words of Solomon. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And in his prayer dedication, he's get the scene. He's built this portico, this big porch, and he's out in front of all the people, and all the people are gathered, and they're about to begin to use this beautiful temple that he has built because of all the things that his father had prepared for him. That'll preach. All the things the son is going to build because of all the things that the father has prepared for him. Um, it says that then Solomon stood before, this is verse 22 in chapter 8 of 1 Kings. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. And he spread out his hands towards heaven. And he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. Keeping covenant and showing loving kindness, that's his chesed, to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with, um, who have kept with your servant, my father David, that which you have promised him, indeed you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it and your hand is at, uh, as it is this day. You have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. He's glorifying the, um, the way that God has fulfilled everything. His holding on to his promises and causing them to, to come forward. He's doing these things and he's saying the same thing. There is no other God. There's no God like you. There is no other thing. In Psalm 86, verse 7 through 9, he says, In the day of my trouble, the psalmist says, this is verse 7 of chapter 86 of Psalms. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. This is somebody who knows that not only that God exists, but that he can cry out to this God, and this God's going to answer him, that he's there. This sounds like a personal relationship that this person had with the God of the universe. So the idea of a relationship with God is not something that's New Testament. This sounds like somebody who's intimately, who knows God, because he says, In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. Then it says, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord. Little g. Little g. 
There's no one like you among the gods, O Lord. Nor are there any works like yours. All the nations whom you have made, there's that idea of creator, of all the nations whom you have made, shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Same kind of language that God uses here in Isaiah for the purpose of expressing the idea that all the people of all the earth, everywhere, have access to God. And why is that? Because He's accessible to everyone. Everyone everywhere. In other words, there's only one God who has done all of these things. And even though people have all their false gods, ultimately they can come to Him if they will just repent and come to Him. That's what He's saying. They will come to you and they will glorify your name. It almost sounds like every knee will bow and every tongue will confess or swear allegiance, doesn't it? In verse 6, going back to Isaiah 46, he says this, Those who lavish gold from the purse... So who are those who lavish gold from the purse? They're wealthy people. People who got money. People who maybe have never known what it's like to be poor. But he says they lavish gold. That's the idea here. They, they just give and give and give their gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale. So they both have gold and silver. We're talking wealthy people. Hire a goldsmith and makes it into a god. And they bow down and indeed they worship it. You understand the, the, the foolishness that's involved there? They have this goldsmith make this god, form this god, shape this god. We've read about this in Isaiah 40, which we'll get to. But in Isaiah 44, if you remember the, the folly of idolatry, God had spoken through Isaiah, and he wrote this and, and recorded it for us in verse 9 of chapter 44. He says, Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even, though, even their uh, own witnesses failed to see and to know. They're blinded. They don't get it. They can't see it. They're dumb on purpose. So that they will be put to shame. Who has, fan who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. For the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. In other words, God says, I'm going to judge them. They're making all their false gods, and their false gods can't move. They can't answer. They can't see. They're not living. They are as inanimate as the chairs you sit in. You may as well turn around and worship them. That's the idea. And God says, I'm going to put you to shame. Let them stand up. Let them assemble themselves. Let them tremble. That's how it's going to come. It's, it's, it's folly. It's futile. It's, it's worthless. It's a worthless thing to do. And you can't make anything that represents who God is. That's why 
Those are one of the things as we're going through Leviticus, we're kind of sorting out some of the things of the law that are applicable to us as Christians and those things that are not applicable. But one of those things that flows is, you shall have no other God before me. That never goes away, right? There's only one God, one God alone. He is the only one that you will worship. And so that's the same idea. That's one of those things. So it's, it's as true to today, or as true today as, or as it was then. It's, it's as true as it was then. It's just as true today. There is no other God. You cannot make anything because there's nothing that you can make that can represent who and what God is. It all falls short because everything that we can think of, that we can imagine, is something that was created. Well, who was the creator? God. So anything that we would make would be lesser than who God is. So you can't make anything. It's folly. In verse 7 he says this, They lift up upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. So they make that, and get that, one of the things that we focused on last week's message was this idea. The, as the Babylonians were being going to take, uh, be taken over by Cyrus, they took their gods and they carried this. If you remember, the, uh, it's reported that it, the one god, Marduk, could have been about 18 foot tall. It's overlaid with gold, so it's not light. It's a big statue of some kind. And think about it, they're, they're carrying it. They're burying their God to keep it safe. They have to keep their God safe. And so they carry it so that Cyrus wouldn't come in and destroy their idol, their precious idol. Do you see the irony there? The, how crazy that is? That they have to carry their poor little God so that they can keep him safe? And they're the same, it's the same God that they're going to find a safe place for it. Then they're going to bow down and worship it and ask it to save them. And I want you to think about the contrast of God. God, in his sovereignty, chose to bear our sin. The idolaters bear their own gods to wherever they go. God chose to bear our sin upon His Son. He chose to carry and be the sin bearer for you and for me. You see the difference? You see how God cares? How different that He is? And He's a living God. And Christ is the one whom He sent, His Son. And he bore our sin. We're going to get there maybe before the end of the year. I don't know. But in Isaiah, that's what exactly is written. In Isaiah 53, the, that area of portion of Scripture for where a lot of Jewish synagogues don't spend any time. They don't like to read it. Because in their denial of who Jesus is as Messiah, they say, this sounds too much like Jesus. Somebody snuck it in there. This can't be real. We don't want to have to explain all this away. We don't have to want to... We don't want to explain this, so we'll just avoid it. 
And I've heard people who are Jewish, who grew up Jewish, when they come across there, they read this, and I, I've seen some of them, and they said when they've come across this and they read it, and in some cases it was a Christian bringing it to them, and they read it, and they're like, well, that's just the New Testament. And then they, their friend, who's a Christian, says, well, check the address. Check, check the address. And they go, wait, wait, this is, this is, this is Isaiah. This is Old Testament. And one Jewish person after another, women, men, drug addicts, uh, sometimes sexual deviants in so, so many different ways, sometimes just people who are just alcoholics, whatever. They read that, and the one question pops to their mind, almost one after the other. They say, why didn't anybody ever tell me? Why did, why did they keep this from me? This is obviously the Messiah. This is who we've been waiting for. I was told that he's not come yet and we're to wait for him. This is saying that this is Jesus. I've heard about him. Why did they keep that from me? It's because they don't know they've decided to Reject who Jesus is. In Isaiah 40, I want to finish with this. Um, those idols cannot answer, no matter how much you cry out to it. They cannot deliver you from your distress. You know what the good news about that is? Is God is just the opposite. You cry out to God, guess what? He can't answer. And He does. I've seen Him do it over and over again. In circumstances and ways that you can't even imagine. I've seen it. And He cannot deliver him from his distress. What does that tell us? Just the opposite of God. God can deliver you from your distress. When you're in distress, as, as the psalmist said, in my day of distress, I will call upon you. Why? Because I know that you hear. And I know that you're there. And I know that you'll act. And I know that you'll help. Because you are our helper. If you remember from Isaiah 40, this is like going over old notes, but this is what it says in Isaiah 40. And in this particular case, I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. He says this, and starting in verse 18 through 25. Same question. To whom then will you liken God? He's asking the peoples. He's asking his people. Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the graven images, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. And a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished to make such a contribution chooses a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a wise craftsman to prepare a graven image that will not be shaken. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not be, been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who inhabits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. 
It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to inhabit. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth utterly formless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been known. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. That's the ultimate question. Who do you worship? Who do you seek? Do you worship at all? That's the question. And in order to worship the God of the universe, it must be as he has given. It must be in the way that he has prescribed. It must be through Jesus Christ. For there will be no other form of worship that will be accepted by God except through his Son. This is what we've come to know as believers is it's through His Son. This is why we pray when we pray. It's not just a thing to say at the end of every sentence in the name of Jesus Christ. It has meaning. It has weight. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Because there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved except the name of Jesus. And so when we pray, we end with those words in the name of Jesus. Because it's powerful. Because this is how we're coming to God, by faith, in the name of Jesus. We're coming by the power of His name. We're coming by the majesty of His name. We're coming by the holiness of His name. We're coming by the, by the, by the glory of His name, by the wonder of His name. And He's a mighty, mighty God to save. And there's no other way. He is the Holy One. And he asks that question, to whom then will you liken me? Today we have people in Israel, I was reading an article the other day, they're one step closer to giving you a pill that will give you eternal life. Don't believe it, it's a lie. There's only one who can give eternal life. And it's not some pill. They're mistaken. Dr. Um, Yuval Noah Harari, one of the uh, puppet masters with uh, um, Klaus Schwab, the whole WEF one-worlders, this death cult. He says that he will grant you what God cannot grant you because there is no God, but he can give you eternal life. By plugging into your brain and plugging you into the ethernet, he can make you eternal and give you eternal life. He can make you like God. I've heard that claim before. And he was done away with. That same kind of idea is still around. And as I opened, it's the same thing. We still struggle with that idea today. The question is, who's on God's throne in your life? Is it God? The only God? 
The God that says that there is no other God. The God who stretched out the heavens and the earth. The God who made the earth to be inhabited. Is it that God or is it the God of your own imagination? I think it was J.C. Ryle that said, If you imagine God, then you imagine an imaginary God. You get that? Because if you let your imagination tell you what God is and who God is, that's a God of your imagination. He said the way that you can find God and the only way that you can find out who God is is through what He has given us so that we might know Him rightly. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus is the only way. He's the only way that we can be saved. He's the only way that we can know uh, and be delivered in our day of distress. It's through Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. It's always been about Him. And it will always be about Him. And when we're in heaven, we'll get to see Him as He is. That is an awesome thought. That is an amazing thing. And that keeps me going. That keeps me going. Because He is the one who can save us. Do you know Him? Do you trust Him? Are you worshiping the God of heaven? Or are you worshiping the God of your imagination? It's an important question to think about. I was told things about God as a kid that I believed because my parents told me they were wrong. They weren't trying to lie to me, but that's what they believed. That's what they had been taught. They weren't being mean. They weren't being malicious. They, weren't, they didn't have any uh, malintent. They were very loving, kind parents. They raised me fairly well for the most part. I was the one who was the rebellious one, not them. But I came to know as I became a Christian, I, I began to see God as He is. And it undid a lot of things in my mind. Do you know Him? Do you want to know Him? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to know that you're going to be with Him forever? That's the important question. When you die, where will you go? There's only two places. There's heaven and there's hell. That's it. And there's no other uh, options. God is the only one who can save. He is the God of all creation. He is the one who sustains. Praise Him. Worship Him. Seek Him. Thank Him. As Charles Spurgeon said to the man who was asking, how do I know that I'm saved? And he simply said, well, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? He said, yes. He said, well, do you believe that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness and salvation? And the man said, yes. He said, well, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? And that he was buried and rose again on the third day? And the man said, yes. And then Charles Spurgeon said this then. Well then, thank him. Just go thank him. If you truly believe all those things, you will thank Him and you'll know that you're saved, not because of the things that you do, but because of what Jesus has done. It's as simple as that. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your grace and Your mercy. Thank You for these things that You have drilled into our hearts and minds, those things that we know to be true, that You are God and You are God alone, and there is no other. You are the Maker of heaven and earth, and only You have done it.
You didn't need millions of years. You didn't need uh, trial and error. You didn't need any of those things. You simply spoke it. And I believe those six days that are written of in Genesis are six literal days. I don't have a reason to believe anything else. I don't care how much an egghead who has all these different um, degrees, what they say. I just know what your word says. It says that you created the heavens and the earth, and that you alone are God, and that you alone are the Savior, and that you save lost people. You save broken people. You save people who have done horrible things. You gave us Jesus to save us. And he's wonderful. He's glorious. We're so thankful. Thank you for all of those things and more. Be glorified, Lord. Be exalted. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.